When Abraham Lincoln came to Washington in March of 1861, following his election as the 16th President of the United States, he had no thought that the country would soon be embroiled in a costly and bloody civil war. The slave states of the South had threatened secession in the past and always pulled back. This time, Lincoln believed, would be no different. He was open to accommodation if it would avoid armed conflict, but he was unshakable on one point. Lincoln insisted that secession was a constitutional impossibility and that he was obligated by his presidential oath to defend the integrity of the United States. So when the Confederates launched their attack on Fort Sumter in Charleston, South Carolina, on April 12, 1861, Lincoln called up federal troops and declared a naval blockade of the southern coast. The war was on, and Lincoln was completely unprepared for it. Everything went badly at first. A hastily assembled Federal Army met with a humiliating defeat at the first major battle of the war at Bull Run in Virginia. More defeats followed. But Lincoln stood firm. New armies were recruited, fresh funds were raised through taxes and bond sales, and the naval blockade was strengthened. Gradually, the military tide turned. In the East, Union forces foiled an attempted invasion of Maryland and Pennsylvania at the bitter Battle of Antietam in September 1862. And a second Confederate invasion the following summer was smashed at the Battle of Gettysburg. In the West, a Federal naval flotilla seized the major Confederate port of New Orleans. This was followed by Union General Ulysses Grant's capture of the Confederate citadel on the Mississippi River at Vicksburg. Lincoln saw in Grant a man who had the qualities to bring the war to a finish. In March 1864, he brought Grant to Washington to plan a major new offensive. Their plan was blunt, bloody, and effective. Overwhelm the Confederacy with superior Union firepower. Grant pursued it relentlessly, aided by his equally relentless subordinate, William Tecumseh Sherman. Lincoln rode the wave of Union victories to re-election in November 1864. On April 9, 1865, the war finally came to a close, with Lee surrendering to Grant at Appomattox Courthouse near Richmond, Virginia. Lincoln rightfully deserved credit for his successful prosecution of the Civil War. What is less well-known, but nearly as significant, are the major policy changes he introduced even while the war was being waged. For six decades, the federal government had been dominated by the Democratic Party and by its suspicion of commerce and manufacturing. Lincoln, however, had come to political maturity in the Whig Party, which favored the funding of transportation infrastructure to promote commerce a national banking network to create a stable monetary system, and tariffs to protect American industries from foreign competition. As president, Lincoln signed legislation that implemented all three of these new directions. This, along with his plan to create a transcontinental railroad, set the stage for the great industrial expansion of the United States during the last three decades of the 19th century. And, on January 1, 1863, he issued his Emancipation Proclamation that declared free all the slaves of the rebel Confederacy. 
This was the precursor to the 13th Amendment of the Constitution in early 1865, forever outlawing slavery in the United States. In all of these labors, Lincoln displayed astonishing resilience and humility in the face of both loss and victory. I shall do nothing in malice, he wrote in 1862. He was true to his word. By the start of his second term, the first of any president since Andrew Jackson, Lincoln had mastered every aspect of his office. The old man sits here, his personal secretary, John Hay, marveled, and wields like a backwoods Jupiter the bolts of war and the machinery of government with a hand equally steady and equally firm. His public addresses, especially his dedication remarks at the Soldiers' National Cemetery at Gettysburg in November 1863, and his second inaugural address, rose to levels of eloquence that no other president has matched. Sadly, Lincoln had little time to savor his triumphs. On April 14, 1865, only five days after Lee's surrender, a fanatical Southern partisan, John Wilkes Booth, shot Lincoln from behind while the president was watching a play at Ford's Theater in Washington. Lincoln died the next morning without regaining consciousness. All the world mourned. I'm Alan Gelso, author of Abraham Lincoln, Redeemer President, for Prager University. Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation. If the best of America could be embodied in one man, that man would be Abraham Lincoln, the 16th President of the United States. Born on February 12, 1809, Lincoln lived his early years in a log cabin with a dirt floor. He described his childhood and adolescence in Kentucky and later Indiana in bleak terms as the backside of this world. His father, Thomas Lincoln, didn't see much practical value in formal education, and his son received almost none. But young Lincoln's instincts pointed in an entirely different direction. He devoured every book he could get his hands on, and aided by a near-photographic memory, he retained everything he read. His goal was always what he called improvement. At age 19, now six feet four inches tall and all hard angles, he worked on flatboats carrying cargo down the Mississippi River, finally settling as a store clerk in New Salem, Illinois. There, Lincoln quickly established a reputation for good humor, scrupulous honesty, and a fierce determination to make the most of himself. In 1832, following a stint in the state militia, he decided to pursue a legal career. Like many lawyers, he was drawn to politics. In 1834, he won election to the state legislature. Lincoln endorsed the tenets of the Whig Party, which had been organized by Senator Henry Clay as a breakaway from the dominant Democratic Party. Clay and the Whigs supported policies which would build national commercial infrastructure like roads and canals, create a national bank to stimulate investment and expansion into the West, and build tariffs around struggling American industries to protect them from foreign competition. For many Northern Whigs like Lincoln, slavery was also an issue, 
And in 1837, Lincoln made his first public statement against slavery, condemning it as founded on injustice and bad policy. In 1846, Lincoln was elected to Congress to represent the newly created 7th District in central Illinois. What he hoped would be the start of a career in national politics quickly fizzled. Lincoln criticized President James Polk, a Democrat, for goading Mexico into war. It was a principled but unpopular stance and cost him re-election. He returned to Illinois in 1849 at the end of his solitary term to devote himself to his law practice. He quickly established himself as one of the top attorneys in the state. His ability to master the facts of a case, no matter how complex, and then weave those facts into a coherent narrative, always leavened by his inexhaustible supply of funny stories, made him irresistible to juries. But in 1854, he was pulled back into politics. The passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which would open the door to the expansion of slavery into the new territories west of the Mississippi River, aroused him, he said, as he had never been before. In 1856, Lincoln found a new political home with a new anti-slavery party, the Republicans. Running as a Republican for the first time, he contested the U.S. Senate seat held by Illinois' favorite Democratic son, Stephen Douglas, who had authored the Kansas-Nebraska Act. What was supposed to be an easy win for Douglas turned into a hard-fought campaign. In seven open-air debates across the state, sometimes before as many as 15,000 people, the two men hammered each other over the slavery issue. Lincoln narrowly lost the election, but won wide recognition as a rising star. His star burned even brighter after he gave a speech at Cooper Union in New York City. There, he articulated how the original intent of the founders had been for the steady elimination of slavery. The time had now come to act on that intent. When the Republican National Convention met in Chicago in May 1860, it was assumed that William Seward, a prominent senator from New York, would be the party nominee. But Lincoln, to the delight of the hometown Illinois crowd, slipped past him on the third ballot. The Democrats, in contrast, could not unite behind one candidate. They splintered into two factions, a moderate one led by Lincoln's old nemesis, Stephen Douglas, and a radical pro-slavery one led by John Breckinridge of Kentucky. Lincoln's victory was thus assured. On Election Day, November 6, 1860, Lincoln received only 39% of the popular vote, but 59% of the Electoral College. The southern states, however, refused to accept this outcome. The civil war the country had avoided for six decades through one compromise after another, could be avoided no longer. The heavy burden of leading the nation through that war would fall on the broad shoulders of a man about whom few knew anything, but whom many would soon come to revere. I'm Alan Gelso, author of Abraham Lincoln, Redeemer President, for Prager University. How does this sound? $1,000 a month, no questions asked. You don't even have to buy a lottery ticket. All you have to do is breathe. Too good to be true? Well, that depends on your view of UBI, or universal basic income. 
UBI is an idea that has been kicking around for a while. The concept goes like this. Give people enough money to take care of their basic needs and we can eliminate poverty. In other words, we establish a floor below which no one will fall. Every citizen is provided for. Appealing, no? After all, we live in the wealthiest country on earth and yet we have people living in the street. It's a moral travesty. UBI solves it. Of course, there's a small question of who is going to pay for it. Giving $1,000 a month to every American citizen, that's the universal part of UBI, would cost something like $3 trillion a year. That would make it by far the most expensive item in the federal budget. Of course, everyone's taxes would have to go up to pay for this gigantic new expense. How much? David Henderson, an economist at the Hoover Institution, calculates that to pay for UBI, the federal government would have to increase taxes by 74%. Venture investor and former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang, a vocal proponent of UBI, says we can fund UBI with a 10% value-added tax, which means that everything you buy will have a 10% surcharge built in. Would Americans agree to such a big tax on top of all the taxes they already pay? Seems unlikely. The chances, then, that we could raise the money in taxes, by any method, to pay for the program are almost zero. That means the government would have to make up the difference. That is, go deeper into debt. Which is just another way of saying, print more money. The inflation this would almost certainly cause would raise prices and make the dollars people were getting from UBI worth steadily less, therefore defeating the purpose of the entire enterprise. Of course, some proponents say that UBI would make many existing government assistance programs, like food stamps and Medicaid, unnecessary, and that would save a lot of money. Okay, but as generous as a $1,000 monthly giveaway might seem, do you really think it would cover food, healthcare, and other living expenses, let alone your iPhone? For the sake of argument, let's say money or inflation were not big obstacles. Would it be a good idea then? UBI supporters would, of course, say yes. When people are free from survival concerns, they contend, they are free to pursue their true interests. Instead of merely making money, they would have time for creative writing or taking long walks or whatever interests them. And here's another plus. People would only have to take a job that they find fulfilling because they wouldn't have to worry about the basics. But... Given what we know of human nature, another scenario seems much more likely. People would spend a lot more time on the couch, playing video games, or swiping their way through TikTok. And then there's the dignity that comes from work, from making your own way in the world, developing habits of personal responsibility. Do we care about that? Or is that just a remnant of an outdated way of looking at life? And what if UBI flat out just doesn't work? Does anyone really think $1,000 a month is what separates a homeless drug addict from a productive life? Is a $1,000 handout going to give someone purpose or meaning? Furthermore, wouldn't UBI stoke resentment? Nobody likes to toil so that their neighbor can play. That's hardly a recipe for social cohesion. There's something else to consider when discussing the downside of UBI. Once you give people things for free, it's very hard to take free away from them. That's pretty much a universal law. It's also a universal law that government programs expand, taking on a life of their own. Maybe $1,000 a month will be good enough to start, but how long before it's not enough? Do we have examples where UBI has been tried? The answer is yes. Not in its $1,000 a month form, but in more limited ways. Finland tried a UBI program from January 2017 until December 2018 and then gave up. 2,000 unemployed Finns got a monthly payment of $640. There were no employment gains above the expected rate, but many participants said they felt happier and less stressed. 
Duh. Free money tends to have that effect. A few American cities have also tried limited forms of UBI. Some of these programs are ongoing. Stockton, California gave a few hundred people $500 a month. The city government reported that the participants really liked it. And why wouldn't they? What did anyone think they'd say? No, stop giving me money. I don't want it anymore. UBI might sound compassionate, but it's really not. Because it doesn't free people, it enslaves them. To the government. I'm Aldo Barazzoni for Prager University. Are you worried about your future? Worse, do you even have a future? Many, especially those born in this century, are asking themselves these questions. In 2021, researchers at the University of Bath in England polled 10,000 people all over the world between the ages of 16 and 25. 75% thought that the future is frightening. 56% thought that humanity is coming to an end. 39% stated that they were hesitant to have children because the future was so bleak. Are their fears legitimate? Or is it possible there is another side, a brighter side to the story? That we are, in fact, the most fortunate human beings ever. Just how lucky are we? The late great satirist P.J. O'Rourke summed it up in one word, dentistry. One could easily add electricity, air conditioning, and, lest we forget, indoor plumbing. Louis XIV's magnificent palace of Versailles had no proper waste facilities. People relieved themselves where they stood, in hallways, behind curtains, and in the gardens. One contemporary observer noted that Versailles was the receptacle of all of humanity's horrors. The passageways, corridors, and courtyards are filled with urine and fecal matter. This is Louis XIV we are talking about, maybe the richest man on earth at the time. Ask yourself this question. Would you prefer to live in a studio apartment with electricity, a window air conditioner, and indoor plumbing, or a Versailles palace with none of these things? In 19th century London, American philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson observed that no one wore white shirts. The pollution indoors turned everything black. Here's another blessing. Antibiotics. In 1924, Calvin Coolidge Jr., the son of the President of the United States, died from a blister from playing tennis on the White House court. Many of the best doctors of the day were consulted. Multiple diagnostic tests were run and he was admitted to one of the top hospitals in the country. Chelsea Follett, my colleague at the Cato Institute, has written. Yet, he died within a week of infection. Deaths from infection of a minor cut or blister were extremely common at the time, and no amount of wealth or power could save a patient. In almost every way, life is materially better than what it was in the past. And not just the distant past either. In 1997, a 42-inch TV screen cost $15,000. Today, you can buy one for under $200. So why aren't we more excited about the future and the new wonders that await us there? Because human beings are born complainers. Negative emotions are much more powerful and longer-lasting than positive ones. That's just the way we are wired. But the truth is that if you are living today, you are the beneficiary of countless life enhancements and not just in developed countries, almost everywhere. Consider the following global statistics. Between 1950 and 2020, the average inflation-adjusted income per person rose over 300%. Between 1960 and 2023, the average life expectancy rose 46% from 50 years 
to 73 years. Between 1961 and 2017, the daily supply of calories rose 38% from 2100 to 2900. Today, even in Africa, obesity is a growing concern. Worried about the environment? There's plenty of good news there too. The chance of a person dying in a natural catastrophe, earthquake, flood, drought, storm, wildfire, or landslide fell by almost 99% over the last century. Between 1982 and 2016, the global tree canopy cover increased by an area larger than Alaska and Montana combined. In 2017, the World Database on Protected Areas reported that 15% of the planet's land surface was covered by protected areas. That's an area almost double the size of the United States. With so much good news around us, why are we so gloomy? A part of the problem is primeval. We have developed to be on the lookout for danger. That was the best way to survive when being eaten by a saber-toothed tiger was a real possibility. But while the world has changed, our genes have not. And our genes are programmed for danger. The media plays on our fears. Social media has it down to a science. As one study recently found, for a headline of average length, each additional negative word increased the click-through rate by 2.3%. And so, in a fierce competition for eyeballs, the sky is falling every day, all day. We are literally scaring ourselves to death with rates of anxiety, depression, and even suicide rising in some parts of the world. So then, how can you maintain your mental composure and keep matters in perspective? Here is the answer. Follow the trend lines, not the headlines. Not only will that put you in a better frame of mind, it will put you closer to the truth. And the truth is, you have a lot to look forward to. I'm Marianne Tupi, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute and co-author of Superabundance for Prague University. Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation. Otto, my beloved English Bulldog, died just before I made this video. His presence in my and my wife's life for 12 years was an unmitigated joy. He also amazingly became the best-known dog in America. He was on camera for virtually every one of my PragerU fireside chats and became the hero of a series of PragerU books for children. And, as I have often noted, none of this fame went to his head. The sadness we feel at Otto's death and the outpouring of condolence messages have caused me to reflect on three long-held concerns about pets. Concern number one, I have long feared that many people are replacing love of humans with love of animals. For decades, I've asked high school students, if your dog and a stranger were both drowning, which would you try to save first? In nearly every instance, one-third of the students voted to save the stranger, one-third their dog, and one-third declined to vote. In other words, for more than 40 years, two-thirds of high school students have not voted to save a human being they didn't know before their dog. The primary reason they've given is that they love their dog, not the stranger. I realized two things as a result of this answer. One was that we are living in an age of feelings. Feelings have replaced values as the guide to people's behavior. 
The other realization was that as a result of society increasingly abandoning Judeo-Christian, that is, Bible-based values, the belief that humans are special because only they are created in the image of God has all but disappeared. Secular society has no basis on which to declare humans inherently more valuable than animals, especially an animal one loves. Concern number two. Many people who announce that they do not want children then refer to their dogs or cats as their children, but they are not children. Concern number three, while it is well known that people who are cruel to animals are very likely to be cruel to human beings, the converse is not true. Kindness to animals is not nearly as likely to lead to kindness to humans. I believe these three concerns are still valid, but so long as people do not deny the innately greater worth of the human being and do not equate animals with humans, I see people's love for a dog or a cat, but I'll focus on dogs, as something unambiguously beautiful. Given the extraordinary bond between people and dogs, I now entertain the belief that dogs are God's gift to mankind. Still, no love is comparable to love between humans. The proof, if you need one, is that my wife and I are searching for another English bulldog. No one searches for another child if their child dies. As much as we love our dogs, we know we can get another dog. But there's no such thing as getting another child, or for that matter, getting any other human being we loved. The companionship of a dog is profound. For that reason, every widow or widower who can take care of a dog, in fact, any person who lives alone should consider adopting a dog. The many studies showing that people who have a dog live longer are undoubtedly correct. Now, my wife and I are not alone. We have each other, as well as children, grandchildren, and precious friends. But only those who own a dog know how much a dog adds to a home. They are life enhancers. And when they leave, some life gets sucked out of any home, even homes filled with people. The Hebrew word for dog is kelev. As Hebrew has no vowels, the word is actually spelled K-L-V. Those three letters can also be pronounced as kalev, which means like the heart. I don't believe that's a coincidence. A final thought. All those who adopt a dog know that they are setting themselves up for inevitable pain, the pain accompanying that dog's death. Yet that stops almost no one from adopting a dog. There is a major lesson about life here. Everything truly worthwhile entails pain and the risk of great pain. There are people who avoid getting married because they fear the pain of divorce. So they lose out on what could be the greatest contributor. To personal growth and happiness. And more and more people choose not to have children. They want to avoid the pain of raising children, the potential pain of having a sick child or even a bad child. But they lose out on the most enriching experience available to us, being a parent. If you want to live a pain-free life, you won't live a full life. That's why my wife and I are looking for another dog. I'm Dennis Prager. 
Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation. James Buchanan should have been prepared to be president. He had served as a congressman, a senator, a cabinet member, and an ambassador. He certainly wanted the job. He sought the office four times. But when he finally achieved his ambition in 1856 and became the 15th president of the United States, his impressive resume did him little good. When he left office in 1861, the country was on the brink of civil war. James Buchanan was born in a log cabin on April 23, 1791 in Cove Gap, Pennsylvania. His Irish-born father, James Sr., lived the classic early 19th century immigrant story. He worked hard, lived frugally, and prospered. He and his American-born wife, Elizabeth, had great ambitions for their son, James Jr., and with the exception of a few stumbles, like getting kicked out of college for drunkenness, he didn't disappoint them. Pursuing a legal career, young James moved to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where he took a strong interest in local affairs. Elected to Congress in 1820 as a Federalist, he switched his allegiance to the newly formed Democratic Party in 1824, becoming a devoted follower of Andrew Jackson. He supported states' rights, a strict reading of the Constitution, and was sympathetic to Southern interests, including, of course, slavery. Northerners with such inclinations were known by their political opponents as doe-faces, men who were overly deferential to Southern grievances. Buchanan was more than happy to return the insult. He despised Northern abolitionists who he believed threatened the stability of the Union with their extremist views. In 1844, he took his first run at the Democratic presidential nomination. He lost to former Tennessee Governor James Polk. In 1848, he lost to Michigan Senator Lewis Cass. In 1852, he lost yet again, this time to New Hampshire's Franklin Pierce. In 1856, the stars finally aligned. Buchanan won the Democratic nomination and then the presidency by defeating legendary explorer and abolitionist John Fremont of the newly formed anti-slavery Republican Party. If Buchanan is known for anything, it's that he was the only bachelor to become president. All the rumors you might have heard about his sexual orientation were common fodder even in his day. But there is no convincing evidence that the rumors were true. When Buchanan took office, the country was a tinderbox ready to explode over the issue of slavery. Kansas, for example, had become a battleground between pro and anti-slavery forces. The two sides were literally fighting and dying over control of the state's government. Buchanan thought he had a way to extinguish the fire. His hopes rested on the outcome of a highly anticipated Supreme Court case, Dred Scott v. Sanford. The dispute came down to this question. Did a former slave have standing to sue in federal court? Buchanan actually knew the answer the court would give before the decision was publicly announced. Indeed, he had secretly pressured the court to rule in the way he wanted. Slaves had no standing to sue in federal court. That would have been bad enough, but Chief Justice Roger B. Taney, who wrote the majority opinion, went much further. He denied that blacks, even those already free, could ever be citizens of the United States. But it didn't stop there. Taney also ruled that the federal government had no right to restrict the spread of slavery. To Abraham Lincoln and others, this meant that slavery would no longer be confined to a particular region of the country, but would become a national institution. Buchanan assumed, now that the court had made its decision, the matter was closed. 
but this was wishful thinking in the extreme. Instead of resolving the slavery issue, Dred Scott only inflamed it. Then in 1859, the match was lit. Radical abolitionist John Brown led an unsuccessful slave revolt in Harper's Ferry, Virginia. While many in the North hailed Brown as a hero and a martyr, the South regarded him as a dangerous terrorist. Southerners were now convinced that Northerners were plotting their destruction. Meanwhile, Buchanan was caught in a no-man's land. Both sides of his own Democratic Party, the pro-Unionist and pro-Secessionist, saw him as weak and ineffectual. He did nothing to disprove that view. Although he declared secession unconstitutional, he likewise believed that he had no authority to force the states to remain in the Union. Exhausted, he had no trouble keeping his promise not to run for a second term. Even so, the worst of his sins was yet to come. Buchanan did almost nothing between November 1860 and March 1861, five impossibly long months before the newly elected Republican President Abraham Lincoln took office. The southern states left the Union one by one, seizing federal property as they went, forts, custom houses, post offices, and armories. In short, Buchanan allowed the South to arm itself for war. That war would come soon enough. I'm Joseph Forneri, professor of political science at the Rochester Institute of Technology and director of the Center for Statesmanship, Law, and Liberty for Prager University. Whenever I talk to people about the benefits of nuclear power, how dependable, how efficient, how clean it is, I'm always challenged with this. Yeah, but what about the waste? Their question is hardly surprising. The New York Times claims that the U.S. is awash in radioactive waste. The Los Angeles Times writes that figuring out where and how to safely store radioactive waste is one of the biggest obstacles to nuclear power. And Wired Magazine warns that even our next generation reactors may still have a big nuclear waste problem. And so it goes. Even though the greenest of greens will admit that nuclear power is a clean source of abundant, reliable energy, many stop short of supporting it. The nuclear waste problem ends discussion before it begins. After all, why develop this great source of energy if it's going to poison our air and water with deadly radioactivity? There's only one problem with this well-worn disaster scenario. It's not true. The nuclear waste problem is a myth. How so? Let's start with what nuclear waste actually is, or to be more precise, what it isn't. It's not a green goo oozing out of rusted barrels like you see on The Simpsons. That's literally a cartoon. The real radioactive stuff, usually uranium-235, comes in hard ceramic pellets. A single pellet contains more energy than a ton of coal or three barrels of oil. Ten pellets can power a typical American home for a year. These pellets are stacked into narrow, very strong tubes made from zirconium, a natural element much stronger than steel. These are the fuel rods. There's nothing gooey or green about this picture. Then, these fuel rods are loaded into a reinforced chamber full of water. This is the reactor. After the reactor is done using the fuel, there is very little material, now called spent fuel, to dispose of. If all the electricity you ever used over your whole lifetime came from nuclear power, the spent fuel would only fill a soda can. According to the U.S. Department of Energy, 
If you took all the spent fuel generated by all American nuclear power plants for the last six decades, and then you piled it on a single football field, it would form a stack just 30 feet high. That's it. America's entire stockpile of spent nuclear fuel would fit on a single football field, and it wouldn't even reach the top of the goalposts. But nuclear waste is uniquely dangerous, activists say. It remains radioactive for thousands of years. Yes, spent nuclear fuel is hazardous if you get too close to it or ingest it. But you can say the same thing about ammonia, mercury, chlorine, and other deadly chemicals we use every day in industry, and even in our homes. Industries follow strict rules to keep the public and the environment safe from those toxins. Nuclear plants follow much stricter rules when it comes to storing their radioactive materials. Fortunately, it's not that difficult to keep spent nuclear fuel safe and secure. After about five years in the reactor, the fuel rods are removed and submerged in a water tank where their heat and radioactivity gradually subside for several more years. Finally, the rods are placed in an airtight stainless steel vault that's welded shut and wrapped in a thick layer of reinforced concrete. These are called dry cask storage units. These casks are stored under armed guard at dozens of nuclear facilities around the country. They don't take up a lot of space and they've never been involved in a serious accident. Still, not everyone is happy with this solution. Some experts think we need to collect all that spent fuel and put it in an underground storage facility where it can be locked away basically forever. In 2002, Congress approved building a deep geological repository under Yucca Mountain in Nevada. But the Obama administration killed that plan. No number of safety studies could convince them it was safe. Maybe they didn't want to be convinced. Today, some anti-nuclear activists say we shouldn't build any more nuclear plants until some sort of underground repository is completed. They're wrong. First, today's storage casks are perfectly safe. They're well-guarded, too heavy to steal, and too tough for bad guys to break into. Second, the spent fuel inside those casks still contains a lot of usable energy. France, Japan, and other countries reprocess their spent fuel and use it again. We should do the same. So let's stop thinking of our dry cask storage sites as dangerous nuclear waste dumps. They're safe just as they are. And someday, they could be a convenient source of affordable, climate-friendly fuel. America needs the abundant clean energy that nuclear power provides. We shouldn't let groundless fears hold us back. Let the nuclear power renaissance begin. I'm James Meggs, Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Prager University. If you attended college, this is what you were likely taught. America was founded through acts of genocide, accompanied by larceny on the grandest scale. Columbus and the Europeans who followed him sailed to the New World with the intention of exploiting whomever they found, and, if necessary, enslaving or exterminating them. Soon afterwards, they began importing black bodies from Africa. They then built the world's richest country out of a combination of slave labor, stolen land, and environmental destruction. Did I miss anything? As an historian, 
I can assure you this view is inaccurate in most particulars. But getting the story wrong is only part of the problem. The bigger problem is this. If you teach generation after generation that their country, their society, and their history are uniquely awful, they are likely to believe you. This is a sure route to societal failure. This has consequences not only for America, but the entire world. Many in the U.S. seem to have no clue just how much of a city on the hill the U.S. is still perceived to be, and how important that American beacon is to millions of people living under autocratic regimes. If the image of the U.S. is fundamentally delegitimized, if its entire raison d'etre, its reason for being, is tainted, then increasing numbers of people will wonder whether democracy itself is worth the trouble. So let's correct the record before it's too late. The narrative of the stolen country or Native American genocide does not stand up to scrutiny by any honest historian. It is a dangerously myopic and one-sided interpretation of history. It puts 100% of the burden on Europeans who are held responsible for nearly all historical evil, while so-called indigenous people are mere victims, saint-like, innocent martyrs whose civilizations were close to ideal. This is simplistic, anti-historic thinking that has gained currency only because most practicing historians and history teachers have either given into groupthink or else have been cowed into silence by fear of losing their jobs. There is hardly a single civilization on Earth which did not displace natives or which did not engage in nasty wars or ethnic cleansings at many points during its history. No matter who discovered the New World, it's inevitable that a large proportion of its inhabitants would have died within the first few decades after first contact. The New World population was smaller and more homogenous than the Old World population. Thus, its people had less immunity to disease than the people of the Old World, where communities from Africa, Asia, and Europe had been intermingling for millennia. So the claims of genocide by disease have almost nothing to do with European actions, apart from their simply reaching the New World. And, of course, Europeans of the time had no way of predicting the continent-wide epidemic repercussions of their actions. Let us also acknowledge that Native American society was just as warlike as any other in human history. The anthropologist's vision of Native Americans as peace-pipe-smoking environmentalists, which gained purchase in the 1970s, has long since given way to a more Hobbesian portrait of pre-Columbian reality. In North America, most natives were primitive farmers. This means that, with some exceptions, they had no permanent settlements. They farmed in an area for a few decades until they wore out the soil. Then, they moved on to greener pastures where the hunting was better and the land more fertile. If somebody was already on those greener pastures, that meant war. If you won, the land was yours, and the tribe you defeated was destroyed or assimilated. This pattern repeated itself endlessly. In most of North America, the idea that any one piece of land belonged to any one tribe for more than 50 or 100 years is highly doubtful. The idea that the Europeans stole land which had belonged in perpetuity to any one tribe is ludicrous. This is the basic math of all human history. If you can defend your land, you can keep it. If you can't, you lose it. This was true 5,000 years ago, 500 years ago, and to a very real extent, it is still true today. 
In almost every case, conquest happened without remorse. Caesar didn't agonize over his conquest of Gaul. What is unique is that in conquering North America, some Europeans expressed moral qualms about what they were doing. This was true from the very beginning. The priest Bartolomé de las Casas wrote an eloquent plea to the monarchs of Spain as early as the 1540s, chronicling in detail how wanton adventurers had exploited natives against the express will of the Spanish crown. The priest's concerns were picked up by countless others over the centuries and continue to this day. Yes, it was Western Europeans who made an issue of human rights, which is why we debate the morality of conquest in the first place. But who wants to talk about that? I'm Jeff Finn Paul, Professor of Economic and Social History at Leiden University for Prager University. Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation. Everybody knows what happened on 9-11, right? The truth is most of my peers, I was born after 2001, don't. They almost certainly don't know why it happened. Most probably don't even know who did it. Such things aren't taught in schools now. So here's what took place on that fateful Tuesday what the United States of America did about it, and why it's one of the most important days in American history. September 11, 2001, began as a beautiful morning on the East Coast. America was at peace, not embroiled in any foreign war. Passengers boarded their early flights, headed to business meetings, or to visit relatives across the country. Tragically, they were not the only ones who boarded planes that morning. 19 Islamic terrorists, organized by the terrorist group that calls itself Al-Qaeda, Directed by its leader, Osama bin Laden, and drawn from four Arab countries, also boarded planes that morning. All of the planes, the terrorists were split among four of them, were cross-country flights. Their tanks were filled to capacity with jet fuel. Within an hour after takeoff, these 19 terrorists would hijack the planes, brutally murder defenseless stewardesses and pilots, and kill 3,000 innocent people. At 8.46 a.m., a hijacked American Airlines flight leaving Boston crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center, the international symbol of America's economic power. 17 minutes later, a second hijacked plane also departed from Boston, crashed into the World Trade Center's South Tower. The two planes, spewing their jet fuel, ignited fires that burned hot enough to compromise the building's structural integrity. Hundreds of New York firefighters and police officers raced up the towers to rescue the victims. Quite suddenly, the buildings collapsed, killing 343 firefighters, 60 police officers, and thousands of trapped office workers. A third hijacked plane, leaving Washington's Dulles Airport, crashed into the Pentagon, the headquarters of the U.S. military. 125 Pentagon workers were killed. The passengers of a fourth hijacked plane, this one leaving Newark International Airport shortly after the others, had just enough time to learn via their cell phones of the other attacks. Those on board decided that the nightmare would stop with them. Unarmed, with no hope of survival, they fought the terrorists, crashing the plane in an empty field in Pennsylvania. They gave their lives so that more Americans would not die. We learned later that this plane, United Airlines Flight 93, had been heading for either the White House or U.S. Capitol. The Islamic terrorists who launched these attacks made a number of claims about their motivations. But here's the truth. They did not murder thousands of Americans because they disagreed with America's Middle East policy. And they certainly didn't do it because they were poor and hopeless. They were all either from wealthy or middle-class Arab families. 
They attacked America because they despised its values, most especially its freedom and tolerance. The United States, as the guardian of freedom in the West, had to be brought down. This attack would start that process. It would show the world that America was weak, that America lacked the will to safeguard its liberties and people. Bin Laden called America a paper tiger. In the days immediately after the attacks, the terrorist leader and his many supporters in the Muslim Middle East believed he had proved his point. Mothers across the Muslim world named their babies Osama. Bin Laden's face adorned posters in homes and kids in Pakistan wore Bin Laden t-shirts. But on the afternoon of September 14th, President George W. Bush visited the twisted, still smoldering wreckage of Ground Zero where the Twin Towers had stood and megaphone in hand promised that America would not be cowed. I can hear you, he said. The rest of the world hears you. And the people who knocked these buildings down will hear from all of us soon. And they did. America launched its war on terror, destroyed the terrorist leadership, and sent bin Laden into a decade of running and hiding. Within six months, kids in Pakistan were no longer wearing bin Laden t-shirts. And 10 years later, the CIA located and a team of Navy SEALs killed the terrorist leader. America will always have her enemies. There will always be those who despise our freedoms, who hate our democracy, who want to see America buckle in the face of tyranny, to sacrifice our way of life to appease those who despise it. And we will always be faced with a choice to surrender our freedoms or to preserve them, to grovel before those who hate us, or to honor the lives of the nearly 3,000 Americans who died on 9-11. But first, young Americans need to learn what happened that day. I'm CJ Pearson for Prager University. Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation.